Hi, I'm Mike Duran. Welcome back to Counterbalance. My co-host Peter Rao is on special assignment in an undisclosed location today, so I'll be flying solo. My guest is Ken Pollack, senior fellow at the uh, American Enterprise Institute. Ken is an old friend of mine. He was a CIA military analyst. He has written two huge tomes on Arab militaries. He's the the foremost expert in the world on Arab uh, militaries, as well as numerous other books. Uh, And he has just written an interesting article in uh, Foreign Policy comparing the 1973 Arab-Israeli War, that's the Yom Kippur War, to the current conflict. We're going to talk a little bit about that article, and then we're going to talk about uh, his view of the war. What are the mistakes the Israelis made so far? Why were they so surprised? What are they going to do in Gaza? And uh, what's the possibility of a northern front with Hezbollah opening up? Uh, stick with us. It's going to be interesting. Welcome. I'm joined today by Ken Pollack. He's a jolly good fellow at the, uh, a- at the American Enterprise Institute one of the most uh, renowned experts in Washington on the, the Middle East and uh, a leading military analyst. Hello, Ken. Hello, Mike. Thanks so much for having me on. Ken, you uh, welcome. You have just uh, written uh, a, a very interesting article on the 1973 Arab-Israeli War, the Yom Kippur War, the Ramadan War, and comparing it to the current conflict with Hamas. Why don't you give us a quick summary of your uh, of your argument? As a military analyst and as someone who's written extensively on the 1973 October War, the parallels at the military level are fascinating. There's no question in my mind that Hamas almost literally took a page out of the Egyptian playbook, um, you know, down to kind of very specific military technical aspects. Um, I think the only ones worth mentioning right now are at a somewhat larger level that you know, Hamas clearly did recognize how the Egyptians used surprise and a careful study of Israeli defenses and operating procedures to figure out how you could mount a very painful opening attack on the Israelis, but also a recognition that inevitably Israel would counterattack. And that just as, just like the Egyptians, Hamas has to be expected to be ready with a very formidable defensive system in Gaza awaiting that Israeli response. That's the kind of military side. And as I said, you know, I'm delighted, Mike, if you want to start getting into the military details to talk about how much the Hamas attack parallels the Egyptian attack in 73. But I Here's, actually think- Sorry, why don't you just, just give us, I, I, we, we won't... Uh- we won't belabor this too long because we want to get to the uh, to the conflict today. But I am curious. So give us a give us a little taste of the of how it parallels the. Sure. So you know, it's everything from Hamas, like the Egyptians, learned to study the Israelis in great detail to watch how they performed even the most minute aspects of day-to-day behavior along the border between Gaza and Israel, looking for patterns of behavior or gaps in the defenses that they could exploit. And like the Egyptians, they came up with a whole variety of, in many cases, simple 
but unbelievably effective ways to take advantage of those Israeli gaps and patterns. So, you know, the one that was most strikingly obvious to me is one of the things that the Egyptians did in 1973 is that the Israelis had, had raised these huge 30 meter high sand barriers along the Suez Canal that were a very formidable obstacle to any assault across the Suez Canal. Well, the Egyptians just kind of, you know, thinking it through and thinking it through, figure out that if you take high pressure water cannon, right, the stuff that you use to fight fires, you can cut through those sand barriers in record time, right? A very, very simple solution. Well, Hamas is looking at the Israeli barrier system and they figure out you just drive a bulldozer through one section and you can knock it down and push through that way. And when I saw the photographs of these Hamas bulldozers, right, the light bulb went off in my head. It's just like the Egyptian water cannons, right? A very, very simple solution. Another one quickly, um, you know, again, we've seen this talked about in the press. The Egyptians learned that the way that you lull the Israelis into a full sense of security is you practice these operations right in front of the Israelis over and over and over again. So what happened before 73 was the first time the Egyptians started to practice the canal crossing. The Israelis, of course, detected it, went on high alert, mobilized everything, were ready. And then, of course, the Egyptians went back to their garrisons. And then they did it again. And the Israelis went on alert. And pretty soon, the Israelis stopped going on alert. They would see the Egyptians do this, and they'd say, you know what? The Egyptians do this every couple of weeks. It's an exercise, and you know they do this 35 times. And of course, on the 36th, it's the real thing. And we've heard the same thing about Hamas, rehearsing so many of these operations where they knew that the Israelis could see them to lull the Israelis into a full sense of security. Right. So again, I think that the military technical details on this are just striking. It is very clear that Hamas learned this lesson and unfortunately put it into practice on October 7th. The, the one thing that, that has uh, perplexed me since this happened, and, and I, I haven't got anyone who will give me a good answer, is where was the Israeli counterattack? You know, in 73, the Israelis counterattacked according to doctrine, as you point out in the article, the, and in your two books on the subject. The Egyptians were ready with, uh, with the Sagar uh, anti-tank uh, missiles to take out the Israelis. But in this case, I don't know where the Israelis were. Where was the counterattack? And how, how, do, you explain the, how do you explain the missing counterattack? I think it's a great question. I think there are... And again, obviously, after the war, we'll find out more about exactly what's going on. But I see two different things going on here. So first, the Israelis clearly weren't prepared for this at all. And as best we understand it, you know, a, a very significant proportion of Israeli forces were deployed on the West Bank, right? Trying to keep the peace there, trying to mitigate or, or sorry, mediate and mitigate the conflict between the settlers and uh, and uh, Palestinians on the West Bank. So these guys just weren't able to pull themselves away fast enough to get down to Gaza. But I think the other feature is, I think this is actually a lesson learned from 73, Mike, which is, as you point out, in 73, according to doctrine, the Israelis just counterattacked immediately. I mean, they almost literally went charging into the teeth some cases literally went charging into the teeth of these Egyptian defenses completely unprepared and took very heavy casualties as a response. 
In this case, I think the Israelis understood full well that Hamas is ready for this, that Hamas had fortified its lines in Gaza, and that the worst thing the Israelis could do was to immediately charge into Gaza the way that they charged the Egyptians in 1973. Oh, no, sorry. I'm talking about the counterattack on October 6th. Sterot was under occupation for almost two days. That's it, it's it's to me it's unthinkable that yeah. that that it would take so long for the Israelis to clear relatively small groups of uh, of terrorists. And uh, I realize that was the the numbers were not were not were not minuscule, but still I would think they would be able to clear communities with their military within hours, not days. And that yes. and, and this I, I and I I can't find anyone who can explain this to me. Do you? Yeah. So again, I, I think that's you're right. That 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 is an interesting and obviously very disconcerting specific case. That is one that I think we're not going to know about until afterwards. But yeah, my initial my gut reaction is again, so much of the active duty military was deployed on the West Bank yeah. that they just didn't have the forces available. And again, I don't think they understood how big this operation was. Right. I mean, you're right. That was. The kind of thing that you would expect the Israelis, as a matter of routine, to simply yeah. go in immediate, instantly and attack. I think that they kind of decided, first, there was a lot, clearly, tremendous confusion on the Israeli side. But my sense is that they did have difficulty disengaging enough forces and sending them down there. And again, whether that was just because people didn't want to release them for the West Bank for fear of, of conflict in the West Bank, or again, that they didn't really have a good sense of what was going on, et cetera. Um, hard to know, but I think afterwards we'll find out. Okay. Interesting. If I can jump back to it. So again, yeah, I want to go just to, I want to finish off your question because it's a really important one. And I never really got to the, the most important stuff, which is the differences between the October 73 war and the October 2023 war, because in many ways they are far more important, right? And they are very much at the strategic level. And there, you know, we need to recognize Sadat in 1973 goes to war with Israel seeking peace, right? He has made repeated peace offers to Israel. The Israelis have turned him down, and he has come up with this idea of launching a limited war against Israel to convince the Israelis that they have to actually make peace with Egypt and give back Sinai if they're going to have meaningful peace. And as part of that, you know, he consciously structures the Egyptian military operation to make it possible for the Israelis to make peace. Right? We, you know, we have extensive stuff from the Egyptian side. And the Egyptians believe that Israel has nuclear weapons. They recognize Israel has all kinds of capabilities. And Sadat is consciously saying to his generals, I don't want to threaten Israeli population centers. If I threaten Israeli population centers, I don't know what kind of a response I will get back from the Israelis. And I could do so much damage that it could ruin my ultimate goal here. And so, you know, again, the canal crossing was never meant to go beyond the immediate canal zone, but Egypt had long-range weapons that it could have used to target Israeli population centers. They do 
incredibly little of that. In fact, you the know, long, the long range weapons being scud missiles, scuds, bombers, right? You know, their Egyptian aircraft could have re again. You know, you know this. <laughs> Israel is a tiny little country, even with Sinai. Uh, you know, the Soviet, sorry, yeah, the, the Soviet uh, aircraft that the Egyptians had had plenty of range to get to Israel's population centers. And especially on October 6th, when the Israelis were surprised and confused, had Sadat wanted to, he could have done much more damage to Israeli population centers. He only does a tiny amount, just fires off one or two scuds, just as a signal to Israel, hey, I can do this. But he doesn't actually bombard them because, again, his goal is peace. Hamas, their goal was not peace. Their goal, in fact, is to destroy any possibility of peace. Hamas is you know, an outrageous uh, terrorist group. Their goal in all of this is to make peace between Israelis and moderate Palestinians impossible. Their goal was to make peace between Israel and the Arab states impossible. Their goal was to make Peace in the Middle East, impossible. And, you know, unfortunately, I think for the moment, they've done a really good job of that. Would you say that they are winning or losing at this point? Right now, I think that Hamas is winning. Right? I think that both Hamas and let's bring them in and Iran have to this point won huge victories. Now, like the October war, right, the Egyptians and the Syrians win big victories in the opening days. By the end of the war, Israel has won a massive military victory over both of them. So assuming that this war continues, assuming it doesn't get shut down prematurely by you know, a misguided uh, ceasefire, uh, I think, I hope that Israel will again win a military victory that will convince Hamas, Hezbollah, Iran, and you know, let's remember beyond them, Russia, China as well, that this kind of aggression doesn't make sense. We're not there yet. And if you shut it down now, if you were to end this war right now, if you call the game because of rain at this point in time, Hamas and Iran will have won huge victories. If we have to persuade all three actors, Hamas, Hezbollah, Iran, that uh, this kind of violence doesn't, uh, this kind of attack doesn't pay What's your theory of victory? What kind of Israeli victory would make such a convincing case to all three of those actors? Yeah, so and this is this is where things get tough, but I think that you know, unfortunately, the only way that you're going to be able to do this is exactly what the Israelis are talking about, which is that you inflict tremendous damage on Hamas's leadership and its military capabilities. And that hopefully the Israelis are more or less able to evict Hamas as a cohesive military force from Gaza, uh, the way that they evicted it. They evicted the PLO from Gaza in 67, the way that they, this is a terrible example, but I'm going to say it, the way that they evicted the PLO from Beirut in 1982. And for that matter, the way that the Jordanians evicted the PLO from Jordan in 1970. Um, but I think that that's what is going to be required because you need to convince Hamas. Well, first, you need to deny Hamas the capacity to do this again. And you need to convince the Iranians that if they try something like this again with another one of their proxies, that they are going to lose that proxy 
and it isn't going to do them any meaningful good, right? That's the only way that you prevent Hamas from trying this again at some point in time and convince the Iranians not to try it again with some other group. The um, Americans, that is uh, President Biden, stated that Israel should not conquer the whole strip. So is it possible to destroy all of Hamas's capabilities and its leadership if you don't take over the whole Gaza Strip? Uh, I will speak as a military analyst here, uh, and the answer is basically no. Right? You know, Hamas are anything but stupid. And you know, if you leave a corner of Gaza that the Israelis have not systematically gone through, that's where Hamas will hide. Right? And again, we see this. You know, Hamas is trying hard to keep the civilian population in the area that the Israelis have marked out as the first part of what I think will be a multi-phase uh, clearing operation in Gaza. They're trying to keep the population there because, of course, you know, Hamas is trying to drive up the number of, of Palestinian civilian casualties. And while I have no doubt that there are a lot of Hamas fighters staying there because their goal is to bloody and defeat the Israeli operation, I also have no doubt that the Hamas leadership has gotten out of there. Right, they're you know those guys are not looking to get killed. Uh, that's why they got fighters and civilians for. But you know, I think this is a really important point. And you know, here I just I want to make this point. Um, you know, I have tremendous sympathy for the plight of the Palestinian people. Um, you know, I am still to this day a firm believer that there needs to be a Palestinian state, that there needs to be a, a two-state solution, that that is the only answer ultimately to the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. Hamas does not, right? We have to recognize this. Hamas is not interested in that. And ultimately, you know, Hamas's interest in the Palestinian people is, is kind of a, you know, almost millenarian theoretical one that, you know, yes, someday there will be this Palestinian state encompassing all of the land between the river and the sea, as they constantly say. So no state of Israel, but you know they're willing to kill every Palestinian civilian between now and then to help them achieve that goal. And they believe that every dead Palestinian civilian helps them achieve that goal, right? So Hamas is not the friend of the Palestinian people, even if you know I can understand, I think it's utterly misguided, but I can certainly understand why Palestinians would kind of cheer them on in their fight against Israel. You know, we need to recognize this. Hamas is not interested in the Palestinian people. They want Palestinian civilians to die. And so in this clearing operation, they're going to protect their own leadership, not the Palestinian people. Are you surprised by the amount of sympathy that Hamas is uh, garnering around the world, particularly in the West? I won't say I'm surprised. I, I think that things have been going in this direction for quite some time. I will say that I am deeply disappointed. It is so tragic that so many well-educated Westerners are incapable of recognizing absolute evil when they see it. Right. Whatever you know, you believe about you know justice in this, the deliberate slaughter of children and infants 
cannot be justified by anything. And, you know, especially for kind of, again, well-educated Europeans uh, of all people, right? These are the people who understand this. You know, they will uh, use it against us or anybody else uh, the moment it comes up. And yet when Hamas does it, somehow Hamas is justified in doing it, right? The double standards are shocking. But also the use of uh, the use of human shields. I yeah. find that when I uh, when I argue with people uh, here in D.C. about it, it gets dismissed as an Israeli talking point rather than a description of reality. When it's so obviously the case that they are firing rockets from that they have that they have military facilities near, under, around schools and hospitals and in uh, civilian residential areas. They're firing rockets from those areas. Um, they're uh, insisting that, uh, that civilians stay put when, in the areas where the Israelis are telling them to leave from. Uh, and, uh, and it gets excused. It's required. I'm, I, don't, I don't ask you to um, solve this problem. I mean, I don't think any of us have a solution for it, but, I, I, but, but just share with me, if you do have any interesting thoughts about it, I'd, I'd love to hear them, but I find it remarkable. I'm talking about people here in Washington, not just, uh, you know, not, not just uh, kafia-wearing students at Columbia. <laughs> uh, again, I, I, I completely agree with you, Mike. Um, you know, it is one of the tragic ironies of the internet age that, you know, the internet has brought us so much more information. And, you know, for instance, in part because of the internet, uh, people were able to figure out very quickly, right, within basically 24 hours, that the Al-Akhli hospital was not struck by the Israelis, right? That the damage, whatever damage was done there, and it clearly wasn't nearly as much as Hamas claimed, but whatever damage was done there was done by a Hamas rocket, right? And, and the information got out there in record speed, right, in a way that it, it couldn't have before the internet. But the internet also allows the dissemination of false truths and allows people to simply believe what they want to believe. Um, if you want to believe that Israel did it, there are all these people simply echoing that. Um, and yeah, you know, in the case, I'm, of the I'm shocked. I'm shocked at the number of people who want to believe that. Actually, yeah. I mean, and not just the, the number, but also the, where where they're situated, and the roles that they play in media outlets, in policy organizations, and so on. Right, but you know, we've seen this. Yeah, you know, this is part of this polarization, not only in our country but across the world. That again, the internet has contributed to, where you know people become more and more incensed, more and more dug in and more and more determined to only believe information, true or false, that conforms to their pre-existing beliefs. Um, and, you know, utterly unwilling to accept anything that doesn't. Uh, you know, when, when the initial reports came out, I was perfectly prepared to accept that, yes, this had been an Israeli bomb. I had no doubt that it would have been a mistake. Um, but, you know, We've seen this before. You know, you and I can both remember uh, the shelling at Kana in Lebanon in 1996, right? These things absolutely happened. And again, you know, when this first came up, my first response was this may very well have been an Israeli mistake. And I was ready to accept that if there, you know, if there, if that's what the evidence showed. In this case, very clearly, the evidence showed the exact opposite. And like you, what's 
what's shocking, what is you know so you know, disappointing, what is so kind of tragic in all of this is the fact that so many people just weren't willing to accept the truth. They just wanted to believe what they wanted to believe. All right, let's open the aperture a little bit. Let's move to the Northern Front. There's actually some serious fighting going on between Hezbollah and Israel. Uh, press reports are telling us that the Americans told Israel not to open a, uh, a front with, the, with the Hezbollah. Uh, do you think Hezbollah is deterred? So uh, the question is, if Israel, if uh, why, why do you think uh, at the time we're we're, we're t- taping this on Monday morning, Monday the twenty third, uh, so we still don't have an Israeli, a serious Israeli incursion into Gaza. Uh, clearly, one of the reasons. I mean, there are probably multiple reasons why we haven't seen that, uh, but one of them is fear of triggering um, a war in the north. Uh, I would assume. Give us your thoughts on this. Sure. So first, I don't share that assumption, Mike. I think what the, what's going oh, on with the Israelis is a combination of things. First, I think that they're making sure that they've got their plans and their intelligence straight. And second, I think they're training their troops, right? And there's no question you know, that as well as they are they are training their troops in urban warfare, right? Some of these folks need refresher training. Some of these folks have never had it before. But the Israelis do not want to go into Gaza without having given their troops a very thorough, as best they can, uh, course in urban warfare to try to minimize Israeli casualties and minimize Palestinian civilian casualties. How long does the course like? How long? How long does the course in urban warfare take? (laughs) Uh, Well, listen, it can take forever, right? You know, you can train and train and train, and you know, urban warfare is unbelievably complex. Uh, you know, the military, our military refers, and they're absolutely right. It is three-dimensional warfare, right? We sometimes joke about three-dimensional chess. Urban warfare is literally three-dimensional warfare. You have to worry about enemy above you, on the floors above you. You have to worry about enemies below you, including in sewers and tunnels in Gaza, and enemies on the same level of you. It is unbelievably complex. And urban warfare is one of the great levelers. Um, really mediocre armies can inflict tremendous damage on incredibly high-quality armies. Uh, you know, the Battle of Stalingrad is a perfect example of this. The Germans were a far more effective army than the Russians were, but in combat in the rubble of Stalingrad, the, the Russians are able to inflict very heavy casualties on the Germans. So the Israelis are going to make sure that they are as set as they can be before they go into Gaza. And we should recognize that, of course, um, you know, one of the issues for the Israelis is a political one, right? I mean, Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, has you know, a tremendous problem in that he was the prime minister during this entire uh, fiasco. And, you know, if he goes into Gaza with an unprepared IDF and there are lots of Israeli casualties, uh, that looks even worse for him. So that's point number one. Your point about the training it's very interesting. I hadn't heard that from anyone. Is that your supposition based on a, a lifetime of doing military analysis, or do you have direct information from the Israelis that that's what they're doing? Both. Or from, or from the Americans? And, and Both. There, there have actually been press pieces where, I mean, again, this is not something that the press concentrates on because it doesn't seem to be sexy, right? And they'd much rather make it about things like escalation. But you know, there are press pieces where the Israelis will say, we are providing training to our troops on urban operations, right? And, and I, I see, and 
And you, as a military analyst, you understand that that fact is a particularly important fact. Correct. I got it. Okay. Well, that's that's very interesting. Is that what? What other reasons would you um, use to explain the delay? So again, I think those two are the most important. But I think there also is a certain amount. I think this is they're they're past this point, but they were also at least initially really trying to lock down their other borders. Right when they go into Gaza, they want to make sure that if Hezbollah does dramatically ramp up operations, which again, I, I think is unlikely, but certainly not impossible, that they are ready for it. And they've also got to be worried about what happens on the West Bank, right? So they are kind of dotting all their I's, crossing all their T's to make sure that when they do go into Gaza, that they don't suddenly experience enormous problems elsewhere and then have to pull back any part of the Gaza force to deal with it. Ah, I see. Okay. Um, when you, your first point, so you, your, your two points, your three points are number one, gathering intelligence, number two, training the force, number three, preparing the environment, the, the, the other, the other fronts. Before we move on to the Northern front, the intelligence gathering that's going on, ha hasn't that been going on uh, uh, for uh, for years? What kind of intelligence are they getting now that they didn't have two weeks ago? So the first point that I can make, and obviously I don't know exactly what they're what they're gathering, right? That's one of the most closely guarded secrets in Israel right now. But you know, you know how militaries behave, so you have a sense of the kind of stuff. Yeah, and I also have a sense of the Israelis. So I'll say his first point is obviously they got badly surprised on October 7th. And I think that that, you know, very rightly made them question their level of information about Hamas and its operations. And so point number one is I think they're very clearly going back and checking to make sure that they feel confident in their information regarding Gaza, right? This is an, a no-brainer. We got, you know, we were completely wrong in our assessment of Hamas's strategic intentions and we were pretty wrong in our assessment of Hamas's tactical capabilities, at least in terms of their ability to attack into Israel. So we need to make sure that we're right about Hamas's strategic intentions and tactical capabilities when it comes to defending Gaza before we go in. That's point number one. Point number two is there's obviously a very big difference between having a constant intelligence picture over time broadly speaking, about what Hamas's uh, situation in Gaza looks like, as opposed to wanting to have immediate, actionable intelligence that will allow both air and ground forces to better deal with the very specific defenses that they're coming up with. I mean, just one example, um, you know, the U.S. had been watching this is, you know, something that I was doing at the time. The U.S. had been watching the Iraqi military very, very carefully throughout the Iran-Iraq war. And when we got into the Gulf War, uh, we had a pretty good sense of how the Iraqis would fight. But nevertheless, before we launched the ground phase of Operation Desert Storm, we spent a lot of time literally mapping every single Iraqi foxhole, every single Iraqi artillery pit, every single Iraqi uh, command and control node so that when our troops went in, they had actionable real-time information about who they were fighting. The Israelis almost certainly have to gather a great deal of the latter because they weren't necessarily looking for that prior to this. 
How, how useful are the prisoners that they've taken from the October 6th attack in giving them actionable intelligence? Hard to say. Um, it depends on who they took. If they've got officers, they tend to be more useful than enlisted personnel. Um, but, you know, in some cases, if you, if you, let's, let's imagine that the Israelis are planning to do, you know, a breaching operation in a particular sector, right? So they're planning an offensive uh, in a particular sector that they're expecting heavy uh, Hamas defenses there. If you've got an enlisted person who spent a lot of time in that sector, you know, he could provide a wealth of details about, you know, yeah, there's a hidden mortar pit here and, you know, you're not going to see it, but there's a machine gun in place there and there are mines or IEDs located. That could be incredibly helpful if they've got it, right? And again, that's part of this intelligence collection. Exactly what I'm referring to is trying to get that very, very specific actionable intelligence that will help you know, uh, Israeli military operations that are about to be implemented in the next days, maybe weeks, but probably days. So the um, the deception that Hamas carried out over the last two years, convincing the Israelis that they were out of the mass casualty attack business, at least for the time being, wanted to build their economy and so on. Not just the Israelis, they can convince the Qataris and elsewhere and Americans and so on. This is going to go down in history, along with the deception in 1973, as one of the great military deceptions of all, uh, of all time. You know, the Israeli intelligence basically had total penetration of the Egyptians in 73. They thought they had total penetration of the, I don't know if there is such a thing as total penetration, obviously there isn't, but near total penetration of the Palestinians. How is it that intelligence agencies make these, make these mistakes? Oh, this is a you know great question, Mike. And you know, I'm, I'm currently writing a book. I think you're aware of this on the U.S. and Iraq, and of course, going back over our own intelligence community's failures when it came to the Iraqi WMD question. Right? Exactly. How do these things happen? Um, you know, it's a variety of different things, and I think that what we're going to find in the case of Israel, it's a combination really of two things. So one is you never have enough assets, right? You never have enough resources as you would like. And you're always being forced to, you know, rob Peter to pay Paul. You're always being forced to make choices. Where do I put my resources? Do I put them, you know, all against one target, all against another? Do I divide them up so I only get partial coverage of each, right? This is the kind of invidious set of trade-offs that everyone is trying. And by the way, you know, even right now, the United States, we have to do the same thing where, you sure. know, our commander, we never have enough drones. We never have enough intelligence collection platforms. We never have enough satellites, right? We always want more. And in fact, you know, what's always amusing is people constantly say, well, we don't have enough troops to have them, you know, in the Pacific and in the Middle East and to be sending this stuff to Ukraine. It's typically not the troops at all. It's typically the intel assets that are really where we have to make the trade-offs. In many of these cases, we have plenty of troops, right? That's often not the issue. In many cases, it's really, it's the intel assets. So point number one is I think we're going to find out, and there are already little bits and pieces coming out of Israel saying that they had mostly focused their intelligence assets 
on the West Bank, you know, again, you and I know are very well aware of this, for the last couple of years, really, especially in the last year, there were all of these rumors, all of these fears of a third intifada on the West Bank, right? A third uprising by the Palestinians of the West Bank. And so it's, I think it's very clear that Israel had been focusing a tremendous amount of its intelligence assets on the West Bank, assets that weren't then available in many ways for Gaza. But I think that speaks to the second problem, which is this set of assumptions, right? And we've seen this over and over and over again, where a country and an intelligence community makes a set of assumptions about a foe that allows it to transfer most of its intelligence assets away from that foe, assumes that the foe is deterred or benign, right? Something along those lines would never do this, and therefore we don't have to take our scarce intelligence resources and waste them on this other potential foe. We're going to deal with what seems to be the more immediate problem. Or, you know, again, we have this idea of what's going on. We have a set of assumptions that says to us, this is where we need to be looking at, or this is what we believe is happening. You know, in, in the case of, I think what we'll find with this, 73, our intelligence failure with WMD, it's a mindset, right? It's a way of thinking about them. So the assumptions in many of these cases are, we believe that they're thinking about this, this problem in this way. Oftentimes, especially with Americans, it's, we think that they're thinking about it the way that we would think about it, not as the way that they would think about it. Right. right? And then again, we have an assumption and we simply look for evidence that confirms the assumption. And as long as there's some evidence to confirm the assumption, we stick with the assumption. Even when there's disconfirming evidence, we'll stick with the assumption because that's what seems to make sense. Right. And, you know, this I think is exactly what happened with the Israelis a set of assumptions that, as you pointed out, Hamas was deterred. Hamas was not going to do anything crazy, which would invite a massive Israeli retaliation. And that then fed into, okay, we have limited intelligence resources. We don't need to waste them watching Hamas. We can focus them on the West Bank, where we're much more concerned that we're going to have a threat. That's my best guess at this early date. You you know you can set up red team cells or and 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 so on, but this is the kind of mistake that is going to be repeated over and over again. I mean, not necessarily by the Israelis and Hamas, but it's just it's just profoundly human, right? Because group behavior that assumptions take over and countering them is too costly politically or right. And look, you know, let's also uh, having been both an intelligence analyst and a policymaker. I will also say that, and this is not to excuse the failures of intelligence analysts, which at times can be profound, but it's worth recognizing that every intelligence failure is also a policy failure. And they're right. first and foremost a policy failure. Because if a policymaker is simply saying, well, my intelligence community tells me I don't have to worry about this problem, so I'm not going to, right? You should be taken out and shot. Right. One of the first jobs <laughs> of a policymaker is to make contingency plans. As you point out, intelligence is not perfect. It never is. Intelligence is not foolproof. And the world is an inherently unpredictable place. Even when you get the intelligence exactly right, sometimes the opposing leader will just do something 
that he or she hadn't thought of before, but they go ahead and do it. And you're surprised by that. It is the job of the policymaker to think through contingency plans, right? What if we're wrong has to be a part of every single policy conversation. And I'm guessing, you know, you and I were in different administrations, but I'm guessing that, you know, you also had the experience that I did, which is that almost never happens, right? You're so focused on what you want to do that nobody ever bothers with contingency planning. I learned a very important lesson when I was in the White House. Um, I'm trying to think how to put this without. Uh, we, 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 put, uh, we made a political, a policy decision to put intelligence assets on uh, IRGC uh, efforts to kill Americans in Iraq after a big debate, because it, it meant moving intelligence assets off of Al-Qaeda. Once we did it, the grid lit up. And uh, <laughs> the, the, lo and behold, there was a lot of killing of Americans by Iranians. But it was, the, it was not, the intelligence didn't tell us that until the policymakers made the decision to focus, the, to put the spotlight, the intelligence spotlight on the, uh, uh, on the Iranians. So it's, it, the debate that we have here in Washington so much is uh, always, you know, does the intelligence justify this or justify that? But as you say, it's as much a policy question as an intel question. Absolutely. Okay, so um, let's move then to the to the northern front. You just made a very interesting uh, claim a few minutes ago, uh, uh, which I think I disagree with, but I don't really. Uh, I'm actually a little bit confused. Don't know how to think about this, so I'm going to have you help me out. You say there's not going to Hezbollah is not going to join the fight full force. Again, I want to be careful. You, the, there, you, the, you think you, the, the, they are, you, okay, I see you're an intelligence analyst. There's an 80% chance that they are deterred. <laughs> the probability is low. We also, we're, it, the first week that you joined the CIA as an analyst, Mike, you were taught to never, ever, ever use numbers. And it's a very important lesson. Uh, I, think, uh, I think the probability that his bullet becomes a major participant is low, is much lower than people think. And yeah, I'm glad to unpack my logic. I, okay, I, okay, I would love to hear that because I, I think I disagree with you, but I, yeah, let's hear fine. your... So I start here. Um, Iran knew about this attack before it happened. Right? I think that is absolutely clear. Whether they knew about the timing, who the heck knows? But there is absolutely no question that Iran was well aware of this attack before it happened. And if I'm the- sorry to stop you right there, but what, uh, on the basis of what are you saying that? I, of course, believe that 100%, but there has been a concerted effort by the White House and others to suggest that that is not the case. So uh, how are you coming to this conclusion? What the White House is saying is that there's no conclusive evidence that Iran was involved in the attack. And by the way, I think that's a fair point. And right now, you know, the Israelis are saying the same thing. And I think that's very deliberate on both of their part, because I think the Israelis want to focus on Gaza, one fight at a time. If you start saying definitively that the Iranians are involved, first, there's pressure on the Israelis to do something. There might even be pressure on us. But more importantly, there's a lot of pressure on the Israelis to now do something about Iran. And Iran might hear that and think, well, we should just preempt the Israelis. So I think that this is actually a very smart, purposeful campaign on the part of the Israelis and hopefully us as well to say, look, we have nothing definitive so that the Israelis can focus on Gaza, which is what they want to do. They want to focus on Gaza. They don't want 
other campaigns. They don't want horizontal escalation, which is what we're talking about right now. And so what the White House, what the Israelis have said is there's no direct evidence of Iranian collusion in the attack itself. But sorry, no- can you? I, I'm, I'm I, sorry. I got I tripped up on horizontal escalation. I don't think I know that phrase. What is there a vertical escalation? Yeah, and vertical, what, es- vertical escalation is the war gets worse and worse. You use worse and worse weaponry, right? So yeah. you, know, you go from uh, guerrilla warfare to conventional warfare to city bombing to nuclear weapons, right? That's a a very obvious uh, vertical escalation. Horizontal escalation is when you start moving into other theaters and bringing in other countries, right? So the Uh, fear that Hezbollah or Iran will get involved is a perfect example of horizontal escalation. And as I said, right now, the Israelis want to focus. They want this fight to be just them and Hamas. They want to keep Hezbollah out. They want to keep Iran out. I think that they, after they've dealt with Hezbollah, uh, with Hamas, assuming that they win that fight, I think they'll make some decisions about do they want to do anything about Iran and Hezbollah. But I think that's down the road. And by the way, you know, remember, that's how the Israelis handled the Six-Day War in 1967, right? It's really the Syrians who get that war going. But the Israelis want to fight the Egyptians first. They try to keep the Jordanians out. Jordan, of course, comes in, so they're forced to fight Egypt and Jordan simultaneously. But they leave the Syrians alone. Right? And it's only after they have finished off Egypt and Jordan that they then decide, and in fact, there is a small debate in Israel, should we go after the Syrians or should we just call it a day or four days? And they decide, no, 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 we need to take care of Syria as well. So I think that's, you know, that, that's more or less how they're thinking about Iran, maybe Hezbollah, is let's just deal with Gaza right now. That is going to be hard enough. When Gaza is done, then we'll decide if we want to do anything more. Just point number one. All right. Now, let's go back to this question of uh, Hezbollah's participation. So Iran knew about this. And why do I say that? First, because there are all these reports out there that the Iranians participated in the training of Hezbollah. And beyond that, sorry, of Hamas, it's pretty much unimaginable that Hamas would do this without alerting Iran. They need Iran for two reasons. One, they do need Iran to alert the other members of its axis of resistance to try to minimize and deflect the Israeli response. And two, they needed Iran's help both to mount the initial attack. I have no doubt that they went to the Iranians and said, we're going to do this thing. Have you got any tips for us? But also because they needed Iranian equipment, ammunition, everything, right? The I think it's very clear that Hamas understood that after they did this, part of the Israeli response would be to shut down Gaza. That's an obvious Israeli move. And so once the attack happens, Hamas cannot count on getting any more support. They can't get resupply from the Iranians. Everything had to be in place for this war before they mounted the initial attack on Israel. And all the indications are it is. Right? All the indications are that Hamas believes it has everything that it needs to fight back against the Israeli counteroffensive into Gaza, which again, I think is just, you know, overwhelming proof that the Iranians were well aware of this before it happened. If the Iranians were well aware of it, it means Hezbollah was well aware of it. And because both of them were aware of it beforehand, they could have they could have chosen to participate, right? They could have said, hey, wait a second, we want to go in with you, right? And let's recognize 
if Hezbollah and Iran, but really Hezbollah of greatest importance, wanted to fight Israel right now, when, if they were looking for the fight with Israel, the time to have done it was October 7. Right? There was no moment when Israel was going to be more surprised, least prepared, least able to fight back. Right? If you want to do maximum damage to Israel, the time to have done it was on October 7th. It would have been like the 1973 war, where Egypt and Syria both collaborated in this joint surprise attack on Israel. And because they did so, it was a far more threatening war to Israel than if either had tried to do it independently. Right? The same thing, if Hezbollah had joined in, I mean, Hezbollah has no capacity to mount a ground offensive at this point because Israel is fully mobilized on that northern border. But had they chosen to do so on October 7th, they probably could have. They could have mounted a very similar operation in the north, like what Hamas did out of Gaza. And my guess is that you would have had an order of magnitude greater Israeli casualties. Because you know, as you're pointing out, Mike, the Israeli response just to the Gaza attack was uh, disjointed and confused, right? Imagine if you add in a Hezbollah attack on the north. Now you've got attacks in both directions. The Israelis aren't sure who's attacking where, where to send whatever forces. You know, if I'm an Israeli military officer and I simply want to react on my own, do I go north? Do I go west? Which is the more pressing problem? You know, where do my where does my high command want me to go? As it would have been very much like October 1973. So okay, so one. put your put your uh, uh, put your yourself you're in the shoes or you're a fly on the wall in the conversation uh between i don't know ismail khani or whoever whoever is uh, talking to uh, you know, whatever iranian is talking to hassan nasrallah the head of hezbollah about the coming hamas war they have advance notice and the iranians and that and uh, and and nasrallah are sitting together and they're discussing Hezbollah's role in this operation. Obviously, obviously, Israel is going to ha is going to respond, probably with a ground incursion into Gaza. Hezbollah, what's your role in this at this stage of the conflict? Yeah, in the so, pre plan in the pre planning. So, first point I want to make is I always teach my students this. I I'm not going to try to mirror image, right? So, I'm not going to put myself in their shoes, but I'm going to try to imagine as best I understand their own thinking about this. Yeah, that's what I mean. So my guess is, I, I recognize that. I, I know you're asking that. I just want to make sure for your listeners. Um, my sense is that, yes, the Iranians would have gone to Hezbollah and said, Hamas wants to do this. We think this is a very good idea. We think that this can be very helpful to all of us in the following ways. And my guess is that Ismail Khani probably simply asked Hassan Nasrallah what you know, he felt Hezbollah's role in all, in all this ought to be. I mean, my own sense of their relationship is that there's actually a great deal of equality there. Um, Iran sees Hezbollah as an incredibly important ally. And while they can sometimes push Hezbollah to do things, especially outside of, uh, of Lebanon, they can certainly push Hezbollah to do things. So I think that there probably was a conversation between Qasem Soleimani and Hassan Nasrallah in about 2013, maybe 2012, where Soleimani went to Nasrallah and said, Assad's regime is going down the tubes in Syria. We need to help, right? And I expect you guys to contribute to this. In this case, my guess is that Connie went 
in a more kind of agnostic fashion. Uh, is this something you'd like to do? And my guess is that Hassan Nasrallah basically said, no, right? This is not something that I want to do. I don't want to have a second, a second, second Lebanon war, right? In 2006, Israel and Hezbollah fight the second Lebanon war. Famously, it is a humiliating Israeli political defeat. What we always forget is militarily, they still won handily. And very famously afterwards, Hassan Nasrallah you know, gives an interview in which he says, listen, if I had known what the Israeli response was going to be, I never would have ordered that ambush to begin with, right? Because again, the amount of damage that Israel was able to do, even in a horribly, you know, half-assed operation that was just, you know, kind of one of the worst military operations the Israelis ever mounted, yet they still did tremendous damage to Hezbollah. And Nasrallah doesn't want that again. That's not, I don't see anything to indicate that that has changed, right? We've seen repeated Israeli operations against Gaza, 2006, 2008, 2010, 2014, 2019, 2020, 2021. Hezbollah has never done more than kind of minor stuff along the border, which by the way, I would say what we're seeing today is proportionately similar to what we saw in those. Again, it's bigger because this is a much bigger war, but it's not anything close to what Hezbollah could do if it chose to do so. So we've seen repeatedly, Hezbollah is not looking for a fight with Israel. We've seen it over and over again. And as I said, if that had changed this time around, if Hezbollah were ready, wanted that fight with Israel in a way they didn't in all those other previous Gaza incursions, I think that Nasrallah would have said, Yes, but let us go in with Hamas in the initial attack, right? That's when we will do the most damage to the Israelis. And I think that Connie would have said the same thing. In fact, Connie might have come to him and said, listen, Hamas wants to do this. You know, it would be fabulous if you guys would participate in the initial attack, but only do that if you are ready for whatever Israel is going to throw at you in response, right? And again, I think it is very clear that Nasrallah said, I don't want the Israeli response. Now, you know, I can go into more detail, but that's the basics of it. I think to me, that's very okay. compelling. The one, you know, so there are lots of scenarios, nevertheless, that you can come up with where Hezbollah still decides to do something. Most of them, I think, are kind of un in, uninteresting. You know, there's some uh, some scenarios where, you know, for instance, uh, if Hamas is losing badly, does Iran or Hezbollah try to come in to save their bacon? I think they've already made the decision. They're ready to fight to the last Palestinian. I think the bigger question for all of them is if Israel is losing, right? If Israel goes into Gaza and takes a beating, right, and is losing very, very badly, then I think that you could have Ismail Khani coming back to Nasrallah and saying the Israelis are getting clobbered. Right now is the time to hit them. Right, they're not going to be able to strike back at you as effectively. Which, by the way, I think is wrong. But they might calculate that. Um, but if the Iranians think that now is their moment to finish off Israel, you know, maybe they do. So it's another reason why I think that it is that Israeli victory over Hamas is so important. So important to Israel as our ally, but so important to the United States as well. Right, because if if Iran and its axis of resistance are seen to be winning, right, again, they will, there's a, there is, I think, you know, 
a, the greatest, I'll put it that way in those relative terms, the greatest likelihood that they would pile on. And also it will be disastrous for the United States elsewhere in the Middle East because it will embolden the Iranians and their allies to try this elsewhere. And frankly, it'll be disastrous for us elsewhere, right? Because I think other countries will look at this and say, we can do the same. Ken, um, we've got time here for one, one last question for you. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn it into two questions. So but give me short answers to two questions here. Because there's two things I just really want to ask you. If you, want short, is, if you want short answers, Mike, you have to ask dumb questions. You keep asking short <laughs> questions. I need to give you long uh, you're, answers. You're, you're a diplomat. You're a diplomat. The two carrier groups that the United States has uh, in the region and the other forces that we're putting in place there, are they seriously deterring Hezbollah and the Iranians? What, from a military point of view, was uh, the primary intention of sending them? And what is the primary effect? And the second question I have for you and the, to, to end on is you've got uh, the, pro the proverbial uh, elevator ride with uh, President Biden, a uh, relatively long elevator ride, but an elevator ride nonetheless. What do you what what do you, what do you want to say to him? What's the one thing that he needs to know that he doesn't right now, or, or 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 that he's not putting enough? He might know it, but he's not putting enough emphasis on it. So first, on the U.S. forces in the region, I'm all in favor of this. Um, I think that the carriers themselves do help reinforce Israeli deterrence against Iran and Hezbollah. But as I said, I think they're mostly deterred already. And by the way, that's not to say that you won't see some increase in rocket fire and kind of these ground attacks. But just again, it's not, I, I, I think that it's, again, it's very low probability that they mount a major campaign against Israel with tens of thousands of rockets or a massive ground assault against Israel. But the carriers do help reinforce that. I actually think that the cruisers and destroyers that come with the carriers are just as important, maybe even more so, because they have terrific anti-tactical ballistic missile capabilities, right? And one of the things that everyone is afraid of is that, you know, Hamas, but in particular Hezbollah, because Hezbollah has somewhere between 100 and 150,000 rockets and missiles, that if Hezbollah started firing tens of thousands of rockets and missiles at Israeli, Israel, it would overwhelm Iron Dome, David Sling, and the full panoply of Israeli air defenses. So contributing those destroyers and cruisers, and I think I, I could easily imagine President Biden saying, um, I've ordered our Navy to protect Israeli civilians, which is what they would be doing. Right? We've already seen that with the USS Kearney destroyer off the coast of Yemen shooting down several Houthi missiles. So I could easily see President Biden ordering those destroyers and cruisers to participate in the shoot down of missile and rockets from Hezbollah, from Iran, potentially even from Hamas. So I think both are important in terms of helping the Israelis and helping deter further escalation. As for the proverbial uh, elevator ride with the president, um, it's a point that I've been trying to make for several days, but now a lot of other people are making it. So I think it is, uh, I'll simply pile onto it, but I think it's a really important point, which is the day after, right? I think at the end of this, uh, look, Gaza is going to be in ruins. It is going to be in horrible shape. My hope is that Hamas will be driven out. But we need to learn from our experiences. 
in Afghanistan, in Iraq, quite frankly, in any number of other places around the world, that what matters most is the day after, right? And I would pitch it to the president as, one, if Hamas is gone, you will have a security vacuum in Gaza. If someone doesn't fill that vacuum, and it's not going to be the Israelis, and it probably isn't going to be the Egyptians, if someone else does not fill that vacuum, we will have what we've seen in so many other countries, including Iraq, right? You will have a Hobbesian state of nature, a war of all against all. It will devolve into civil war and chaos, and no one can afford that. So there has got to be an effort. And what's more, we should look at this, frankly, I mean, yes, it's, it's awful and it's a necessity, but at some level, it's also an opportunity. Because, you know, for the last 20, 25 years, we've been comparing, you know, a West Bank, in the case of this 15, 18 years, a West Bank that is run by the Palestinian Authority and a Gaza that's run by Hamas. And it's kind of like, well, which is worse, right? And in these circumstances, our view and the Israeli view is, well, Hamas is worse. So we put up with the corruption and the uselessness of the Palestinian Authority, right, which is only marginally better than Hamas. Well, if you remove Hamas and you actually start to create something better, which I think, you know, we've demonstrated repeatedly as the international community, we can build something better. It may not be Switzerland overnight, but we can certainly do better than the Palestinian Authority on the West Bank, right? And imagine if you actually had something better that might transform the situation for the Palestinians broadly, and it might even make peace possible between Israelis and Palestinians. Let me let me end on that hopeful <laughs> note. <Mike. laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry to laugh. I'm sorry to laugh, uh, Ken. Your your article ended on a uh, your your article ended on a, a much more pessimistic note, and uh, I realize uh, you're an American, so you have to be utopian. It's in it's in our DNA. But, I'm but, trying, Mike. I'm trying I so hard. I can't. I can't. I really find it hard to find a really uh, positive uh, vision of the future here. Thank you for, uh, yeah, as you say, for trying hard. It was a, a noble effort, and uh, you probably helped me a little bit. All right, but you, your general uh, answers were incredibly informative, really uh, shifted my thinking a little bit. Uh, in a number of areas. Very, always a pleasure to talk to somebody as intelligent and well-informed as you are. And thank you very much. We hope to have you back. Mike, I really enjoyed this. Your questions were great. And, you know, I love being pushed on this stuff. So, yeah, please have me back whenever you'd like. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this edition of Counterbalance. We're back in action. Please like and subscribe if you enjoyed today's conversation, and we will see you soon at a podcast near you. Bye-bye, and thank you.